0: Hello, Ernest.
1: Hello, Ernest. How are you doing?
0: Um, how are you?
1: Doing pretty well. Yeah. Excuse me, just one second. Yeah. Hello so again. Um any luck with the uh apartment you were trying to rent? With the what? You were trying to rent an apartment?
0: Oh yeah, we're still um waiting for approval. So we'll see.
1: All right.
0: So uh, um I know what open source is and uh-huh. I know what I know what spirituality is, but I'm looking forward to learn about uh, open source spirituality. What is that?
1: All right. So the the short answer is that we've talked about the need to engage people in pro social status games, right, where they uh, voluntarily, rather than through coercion, engage in pro social behavior even at some short-term cost to their personal advantage, right? Mm -hmm. And so a a good word for that, and we can try and find a better one. Uh, Well, the the point is that you want to have some sort of communal experience and values that drives people to do this. And historically, there was a combination of a sincere belief in an all-powerful deity who would punish misbehavior and a very strong social shaming of people who violated community norms and those have been in western civilization at least were the kind of the dominant modes in eastern civilizations interestingly there was no real concept of a single all-powerful deity and you know, in Asian cultures, Japanese and Chinese, there weren't any uh, really any sort of uh, strong deity figures, but there was an enormous amount of social shaming uh, that was used to enforce codes of honor and behavior. So the place we are at in uh, Western culture is interesting. In that there are lots of local pockets of uh, local, probably too weak of a term, but there there, is we have fragmented cultures, which um, ironically, even in Christian circles, there isn't a lot of sense that in the the medieval sense of God is watching you see you better behave. Uh, But both religious and non religious circles have very powerful social (laughs) savings. systems, uh, which leads to probably the intense tribalism that we have seen in American politics and other systems. And so, one of the interesting questions is, um, how do we do better than that? And because if there is no sense of shame or or, or honor, uh, that is essentially anarchy uh, but if there's externally imposed senses of shame and honor it's authoritarianism and if you have subconscious uh senses of shame and honor it's arguably neurotic <laughs> right and you'll notice this a lot in like one of the weird uh, weirdest phenomena of western civilization is that the elites feel the press uh, and often depressed. You uh, used to be right that, you know, I can't speak for the top 1%, but for the top 10% of the population, they are working harder uh, and in many ways more stressed uh, and more fragmented in their lives than poorer people, which is odd. Uh, <laughs> you always would think that the people at the top of the pyramid would be you know, relaxing and enjoying life. Uh, but it's almost the opposite. So especially in Silicon Valley. So there's something weird going on, um, and one diagnosis uh, may not be the right one. But one is that in the absence of external forces, you know, institutions that provide a sense of meaning, cohesion, honor, shame, forgiveness, we are left to implicit subconscious structures for doing that. Which are every bit as harsh and much less visible. And so it's you know uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Zigzag. Uh, she talks about how you know she's a NPR radio host, and they have a uh, you know there's a certain social cachet to being healthy, right? The uh, stuff white people like, right? You know, like the organic, free range yogurts and so forth. Uh, and so on, and one consequence of this is natural childbirth is idolized in that community. And so when she had a medical complication and needed to get medication, uh, she felt this enormous guilt and shame for violating that norm, even though she couldn't point out exactly why this mattered or why she should feel bad about it. And that just goes to show the strength of these subconscious social norms that we inherit And when we don't have institutions, we can't manage it. So we talked about how religion has historically been the sense of the thing that binds us together. And what's interesting is people do actually talk about open source religion, right? I don't know if you were around for any of the open source wars between the free software movement and the open source movement, or uh, the flame wars between different flavors of BSD and so Mm -hmm. forth, but there very much was this, these religious wars that would go on between different platforms, and not just in the open source world. You had, you know, the Apple versus Windows one being probably the most famous, Um, but there were the Unix wars and so forth. And what's interesting is that, you know, in some ways when there's a vendor around, it kind of is sort of, at least easier for capitalists to understand why people would, sell, or even Marxists, to claim white people would self-sort into camps because, well, the, corp- the corporations have a clear vested commercial interest, financial interest in making sure that people, uh, you know, are blindly loyal to them. But if anything, I think the open source fights were even more nasty. <laughs> um, and there's no direct financial correlation for any of it. And I think part of it was because friend of mine had a great line, he said that the reason academic politics are so nasty is that the stakes are so low. Uh, Because everything is so uh, sort of petty and personal, there's never any external threat where you feel like, oh crap, if I get this wrong, I'm going to lose my livelihood. It's all these very fine points of status and prestige and resources that uh, create these really perverse incentives. So anyway, uh, that's open source. So the idea of open source, so how do we do better than this? Well, this is a phrase that came up when I was processing these various systems and the premise is actually the reason why religious structures get toxic is nothing to do with whether they're theistic or atheistic or, Traditional or innovative, it has to do with the nature of hierarchy. And hierarchy exists to codify behavior. And, you know, the reason human culture has evolved hierarchies over thousands of years is because um, solving large scale problems uh, requires large scale coordination. And left to ourselves, we will locally optimize for our communities at the expense of other communities. So the most uh, uh, canonical example is if you have a group of soldiers who decide they don't want to fight and they decided a crucial moment in the battle to switch sides, everybody dies on that side. And so, uh, or, you know, just run off or whatever. And so the civilizations that survived, learned how to create armies uh, where, you know, information would flow to the top, the guy would make a decision, and then everyone in the army would, without question, obey that decision. And someone, you know, at Apple was saying, well, we don't act like that now. I said, tell me, if Tim Cook decided that every Apple retail employee would wear a green t-shirt tomorrow, do you think anyone would dissent?
0: Mm, no, right, right? you."
1: Right, so there's certain things you, you know, if you ask them to like, you know, go charge up a hill, most of them, well, maybe a lot of them would say no. Uh, but if you told them to do something within the bounds of their training and their enrollment, what they signed up for, they would totally do it because that's, we have this concept of a job which didn't even really exist 200 years ago, uh, which defines their identity and is based on some of those same hierarchies. So hierarchies are really good when you have, um, a uniform context over a large region that can fit uh, in a single human mind. And so religions, uh, armies, corporations, were all built in this hierarchical model. And it was really good when there were large shared contexts and it always kind of sucked for people on the margins and the fringes, but it was considered an acceptable price to pay when the alternative was to be out -competed, competed out of existence. So, but the problem with the hierarchy is, I think you are well aware, is that hierarchies are really good for the people at the top to keep the people at the bottom aligned with their vision. But by that very token, it's almost impossible for the people on the bottom to communicate negative information to the person in the top. Because the person at the top, you know, needs to have a sense of unquestioned obedience and, uh, people need to trust that they have a, more information on what's going on than they do, and therefore uh, subjugate their own judgment to the person at the top. And, you know, the, was the saying? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we have, you know, arguably ever since the era of the God King, going back to ultra society, we have evolved mechanisms to try to put some checks on the people at the top. But the reality is that, uh, you know, they work up to a point, And what we have now, I think, works much better than what they had in the Magna Carta or in the Roman Senate or, uh, you know, with Ashoka's priests. But they're still breaking down. And there's two reasons they're breaking down. One, of course, is that the people at the top are corrupt. But that's because, you know, th- that's almost not their fault, you know, that the incentives are all aligned to push them that way and secondly because our contexts are no longer stable right we live in a VUCA world volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous which is which hierarchies are not at all suited for because the rate of change in our context is much more rapid than our rate of learning in any hierarchy Um, and even maybe at a fundamental level. Still with me? Hello? Yes. Okay, good, just saying, okay. So the answer is, okay, how do we do better? So, I think we've discussed this before. Uh, The only thing that can outcompete a hierarchy is a, a emergent network, right? Where you have a system of nodes, that communicate with each other information such that every person, every node, it's could be a person, a cell, uh, organization, whatever, uh, has autonomy about how it acts and is especially to use its own best judgment based on its uh, specific knowledge of local circumstances, but is able to tap in the collective wisdom and experience of the entire network. Right. Yep. And that can include um, what I would call uh, ad hoc hierarchies of authority. And that's actually an interesting way to talk about what happened during COVID-19, where you would find a small group of people or often one person who would then acc- create a small group around who would say, you know, this is a problem. We, are, we need <coughs> to practice social distancing. We need to get mapped. And they formed a team of people who shared that vision, and then they published a series of models or policy recognitions or whatever, and then uh, different people would volunteer to propagate that. I mean, social media being the simplest example of that, people would say, oh, this is really important. I will forward it to my social circle. So the, the forwarders, did not necessarily, or they could have had a wide range of motivations and competence in what they chose, what to, why they chose what to forward, but they essentially voluntarily made themselves conduits for these higher-level structures. And these were tire level, you know, these are some, maybe calling hierarchies is too much of a stretch, but there were still structures uh, that reinforced the authority of certain nodes in dealing with this particular problem. What's important, though is that they reinforce the authority of the nodes without um, giving up their own autonomy. Right, you get very much this idea of delegated uh, voting that we discussed before. Right, it's like for this crisis, for this topic, uh, you know, I'm going to defer to these people here that I now trust. But I always have a very easy way to, and therefore I'm gonna forward stuff they send me. But at any time, I can stop. And there's no secondary consequences. Like right now, if you disagree with a pastor on one small point of doctrine, you can get kicked out of your church and lose all your social structure and relationships and reputation, right? If you get kicked off of um, Uber, you lose all the reputation you built up uh, from being an Uber driver. And so, It doesn't matter. It's not a fine-grained decision. It is very coarse-grained because in a hierarchical system, either you're in or out. Uh, And interestingly, the term for that uh, was also a phrase that became very uh, salient during the early days of COVID-19 is a zero-trust architecture. Have you heard this term?
0: Yes, yes, of course. Bitcoin and a zero.
1: Well, 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 not even that. So the way it originally came up with was uh, as an alternative to virtual private networks. You remember the mm-hmm. days of VPNs where, an or, where, where all the tools you used were located at a physical data center inside Apple's 17 dot network, mm-hmm. right? And if you wanted to work from home or work over a wireless network, you'd have one of these fancy secure ID dongles that you would carry around with you and enter a six-digit code, mm-hmm. right? So every, so every tool, and someone's once described it as it's the the castle model or inside the castle are all the sworn samurai and outside the castle are the bavarians and and as people pointed out in multiple contexts that's a really crappy model one sometimes your best uh soldiers are out your 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 most loyal soldiers are spies outside in the enemy world trying to figure out what the enemy's up to and b there's traitors inside the castle so that's sort of coarse grain yes no binary in or out model was incredibly brittle. Because once once somebody get inside, they basically had the keys to the kingdom. They could do whatever they wanted. And so the new architectures are rather than trusting people based on where they are, it's not really zero trust, but it is you trust people based on who they are. So you have a personal identifiers of various kinds, often tied to hardware uh, and multiple factors of authentication. And therefore, you know, when I moved from being at my office at my startup to working from home, it was basically no different. Uh, there were actually used to be one or two services that actually required a VPN um, because they were based on a server that was sitting you know, under somebody's desk somewhere, or we even had a machine room in the earlier days. Now, I don't think either they're not there or I've just, uh, I think they've rewritten the, the code so it no longer affects that. And so because of that, and that's like one reason why California in the first wave of COVID 19, I think, did a lot better than New York because our businesses were already designed to support remote workers because we had the zero trust architecture. Um, and basically, you're trusting individuals uh, based on their specific roles and responsibilities. And similarly, I trust certain machines based on their roles and responsibilities rather than assuming everyone inside is safe and everyone outside is bad. And so that kind of ad hoc. Emergent trust models is more costly to set up because it requires more intelligence and processing power on each node, uh, which is why it wasn't really feasible uh, 20 or 50 years ago. But it is way more resilient. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Still with me? So, the idea, and what's interesting to me about this is if you apply this to um, Pro-social behavior. Uh, my pr- hypothesis, which I may have gotten into last week, is that sort of the atomic unit of behavior is a relational practice. And there's probably other units as well, but I thought that would be an interesting. One in the context of this. The, the unit of pro-social behavior is a relational practice. That, like you know, when we need someone to be in charge, they are elected by the with the consent of the governed. Right, that's a relational practice um, as opposed to you know, trial by combat or divine rights of kings and so on and so forth. And you know, all these different methods of resolving arguments, trial by jury, um, pull requests, those are relational practices. And so the idea was, huh, we talked about how the challenge was to come up with a system that um, tried to be as open as possible to innovation and open as possible to participation, but still rewarded pro-social behavior and discouraged antisocial behavior without uh, having a hard party line of what that was. And so the idea was, well what if we treated behavioral codes like we treat as if they were open source? So as a community, we have a set of relational practices for how we treat each other. And everyone has um, the complete, have the power to fork either the community or the code. Actually, they probably have to fork them together. Um, uh, Well, you can always fork the community and you immediately get a fork of the code and you can choose to delegate well, my group, you know, adheres to this code of our parent group. Um, you know, it could be either voluntary or involuntary, mutual or unilateral. But the idea is that uh, the people in charge don't own the membership. Right, each individual member can make a fine-grained decision whether to join which fork. Like when Bitcoin forked from Bitcoin Cash, you know, everyone gets equal stake in both, and then they can kind of choose which one they want to invest more time and energy in. But then they also get to fork the code, and they could say, you know, uh, you know. I mean, the big ones I remember in my open source history were EGCS, which was a new version of GCC. There was uh, HTML5, which was the, the what WG Working Group. And then there was uh, X386, where the X11 maintainers uh, split off from the existing project and took over. So those are kind of the big ethical ones I remember. Uh, one could argue even Linux was in some sense a forking of the GNU operating system project away from Richard Stallman, uh who was notoriously the target of Eric Raymond's Cathedral and Bazaar. And it's interesting, when you read that point, you realize that Eric Raymond's thesis was not... Uh, this actually came up because I was talking about how the real... Uh, you know, we've been talking about this issue of Christian uh, uh, religious traditions. And I said, well, the church the, the for unity is not getting a bunch of people together in a room to agree on something. It's coming up with a standard behavior for how we treat each other. Well, you really, uh, know, it doesn't make any sense. I said, well, I agree it's a very bizarre form of unity, but I thought it was actually, it's a bizarre, B-A-Z-A-A-R form of unity, exactly in the Eric Raymond sense of, you know, of the cathedral and the bizarre, because you know, the philosophy there is Many eyes make for shallow buttons, right? And the right to fork means that you have this, in a sense, free market of ideas. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about this mechanism is that, you know, you the expectation is that you as a group publish, in a sense, your interfaces. Like these are the practices that we commit to in terms of how we treat each other how we treat people inside the community, how we treat people outside the community. And then this allows, and if you can sort of standardize that format to some extent, you can give people easy ways to measure how well they live up to those. And we kind of do that crudely today with statements of values um, and scorecards for how green we are or things like that. But again, those are very large-scale, expensive things. The goal is to make these uh, very lightweight and easy to create, easy to evolve, and even at you know the early stages where it's going to be mostly manual, it's fairly straightforward. You know, down the road, it's not that hard to imagine using artificial intelligence and automation uh, to actually give us feedback. And then the whole point is the communities that are truly pro-social in theory, would welcome this. They would say, hey, we are gathering together as a bunch of Unitarians to save the planet, and we absolutely, you know, we believe these practices will make us better human beings and more effective in our mission and attract others to want to join us. And therefore, they really want to get better at it. And that's what I meant by the idea of spirituality. It's where people say, this is the kind of person I want to be. And I'm so serious about it, I'm willing to be accountable. uh, uh, I'm willing to receive negative feedback to help me get better at it. And, you know, that is not particularly theistic or religious. Uh, You know, there are humanists and atheists and all sorts of people who uh, have similar sentiments. And then we say, okay, well, we're not really going to question the sincerity of your beliefs but we will question the consistency of your actions. <laughs> and like a professional athlete who's trying to maximize performance, um, you know, then that's what becomes something that people would in theory be willing to submit to. Um, and the, um, the way the system gets better then is very much in the open source spirit. Of, you know, we have these codes, we share them, we swap them, we can build modules. And different modules come in and out of favor uh, based on both the core functionality and the responsiveness of the maintainer for how they do it. And you know, it's, you know, even in my fantasies, I can imagine it kind of being like npm, where you know we create, you know, this this larger community, like all the people who, just like you have in open source today, right? In the JavaScript community, you have a large sense of community, and then you have different sub communities like React or XJS or, or things like that. And within then you have different module communities and some things they share and some things they don't. Uh, but the NPM acts like this um, uh, common interface for discovering and applying modules with a lot of implicit social contracts that people don't even think about, you know, that there's no malicious code or whatever. And the fact that all the code is public, means that there's not a lot of uh, barriers to entry, but if you're a malicious actor, there's enormous social pressure from everyone to weed out bad codes and to adopt good codes in place of bad ones. So that's what I mean by open source spirituality, which I think I can explain to someone who knows what open source is and how it works, uh, although I have no idea how to uh, necessarily explain that in terms of people who have not participated in you know cooperative peer production uh, and and code maintenance to appreciate what that's a problem for another day mm-hmm. so what do you think?
0: Um, yeah, I understand that uh, sorry, I'm getting on a call here. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, well, uh, this the spirituality side is um, um, uh, it it rhymes well, or or it's uh, compatible with the um, with the explanation of your idea, uh, which you, you know um, is uh, an idea that several people have. Been working on, but having the term spirituality means that you know it's both in it's more internal than external, it's uh, 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 your internal values and ideals drive that uh, uh, your actions and your behavior and your beliefs and that's uh uh it's better than religion because religion is is mostly external i you know when you, traditional religion is mostly you know you go to church there's a preacher you, or um you uh
1: let me put it this way is that religion is is traditionally defined in terms of the in terms of the historical community mm-hmm. right uh um and it's defined by adherence to this historical tradition Um, and so it emphasizes the communal aspects of identity whereas spirituality uh, tends to emphasize the internal experience so uh, you know i I might say the word individual versus communal rather than internal external Uh, and the reason i make that point is that uh, precisely what i'm proposing is to exploit that difference to say okay i want to make an individual choice to be externally accountable to a system which has historically not been part of most forms of spirituality mhm so what do you think do you think uh do, do does this seem like a plausible mechanism to help us fork humanity? mhm, yeah, um
0: it's very interesting uh the challenge, like you said is um how to make it so that people that are not familiar with open source and, and the practices of you know forking and um, diffing and you know sharing the development of of a piece of code or project uh how to teach them uh, the virt- the virtues and the, the benefits of that form of maintenance of uh, information? Um, yeah, I, I was thinking how to do that, but um, you know, I was thinking about a library model, but that's not that's kind of it's not exactly the same. Library, you know, you, you the works of Many people, uh, writers is uh, stored, but it's not all the work, right? It's just uh, some of the most salient work, and then people, the readers, are not—they um, cannot change it uh, early. So that's, that's kind of not a good model, but it's—I don't know—it's the closest thing that I have
1: uh, well, come so up with. Well, the next step up is a really easy one. Uh, if you think about it for a second is Wikipedia and Wikipedia has this tier of readers you know who have no clue that this is not just another website they just consume it because it solves their pro- immediate problem way better than the alternatives right and then the next level up you have so naive readers is one uh, the second level is is uh, sophisticated readers who understand that it's a user-generated Encyclopedia with its own biases and quirks, um, and that they can sort of let's call it discriminating readers might even be a better term, where they understand that. The next level is contributors, people who are actually willing to who know that it's edible and are willing to go through the uh, the barriers to entry. Which you know they finally you know however many years in finally made us so to actually have a GUI editor, which was a huge uh, and I think that sometimes even conscious. The point where they were saying, you know, to avoid getting overwhelmed, it actually useful to have a little bit of friction. And then at the higher level, you have uh, the next level up, actually, you have editors, people who don't just look at their own, but they take responsibility for a certain page and they tweak and rewrite and uh, coach people. And then you have, um, I guess, official moderators where people who actually have you know the authority to ban users and you know take administrative actions where necessary uh after they've accumulated enough karma to be a good uh investment and then there's some you know high level governance of wikipedia that practically nobody i know cares about because it's sufficiently decentralized uh democratized that It doesn't seem to matter, even though it probably does affect things at the subconscious structural level. And the people at the higher levels, uh, you know, probably are aware of it and care about some of these issues. But the first two or three levels, it doesn't matter.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Do you buy that metaphor?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, The one caveat is that my most of the interactions I've had with let's call them regular people when i ask, when i talk uh tell them about wikipedia is that oh anybody can change uh, things in there, so I don't believe what's on wikipedia that's uh one of the uh justifications some of the people i uh know used to not trust it um I trust it just you know specifically because anybody can change it you know I am I have actually have made corrections to Wikipedia articles so uh, because a lot of people read the articles and and people can change them if they're not correct then uh, that's why I, I I you know trust it but that's also why some people don't trust it. you know let's you know we can have examples just like uh, China. You know, has with the uh, entry for, you know, right, you know, or you know, authoritarian governments, they change. They want to change um, the view their, of their entities, their governments, you know, to the outside world. So that's where the Wikipedia moderators have to sometimes lock pages, and uh, so that uh, the truth is what survives, and not the um, uh, modifications of the subject.
1: But, right. you know, well, that's just... more precisely, what I would say is people who are acting in bad faith get locked out, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, people who just disagree don't. And so, yeah, so the point is, is that this is actually a feature, not a bug, that not everyone likes it, right? Yeah. Because in some sense, this is a matter of enrollment. If you're enrolled in this project of cooperative discovery of truth, then great, you know, welcome on board. If you don't care one way or the other, you can still use the stuff, no big deal. And if you're actively against it, then you're kind of forced to shun the system and deprive yourself of that source of knowledge. (laughs) And that's a good thing, if you think about it, because in some sense, you want, uh, the people who uh, believe or less implicitly condone this way of approaching benefit from it, And those who oppose this way of working punish themselves by cutting them off. Now, it is a problem in hierarchical systems like China being the extreme example, where when they do it, they cut off everyone else from it too. But, you know, there's language area issues that make that less, you know, China can pull it off because they have massive scale and their own language system. So, you know, the benefit they would have gotten is lower and the cost is lower. Uh, but pretty much nobody else can. Like India can't. <laughs> India is totally on board. And you know, even the European Union, uh, you know, for all, you know, they may take pot shots at American corporations, but they're not gonna get rid of Wikipedia. <laughs> and so anyway, all right. Uh I think I gotta go run. Um, but it was helpful to talk this through with you. Uh, one interesting insight I came out of all this was that Originally I was going to do this as a GitHub tool and then that seemed to stall and it kind of occurred to me that if I'm serious about this, I should really do this as a wiki and actually uh, let people – I'm probably still going to cheat and do something like ASCII doc um, rather than uh, raw HTML just because – and maybe still use a GitHub backend for it so that we do have the versioning and the diffs and whatever, even if – and You know, hopefully the ASCII doc interface for the first few generations is sufficiently friendly that uh, I can get my structured data out of it, and people will be okay editing it. Uh, Ultimately, uh, it is probably true that we want to have maximum, but it's actually not a bad thing to have a little bit of friction for editing in the first few generations uh, just to you build up the culture before you open the gates. So yeah. that's uh, the, probably the next thing I have to work on is, well, one is I have to get my app to actually load uh, on the public website, which is uh, was stalled on. But then the second step is probably to try and build a GitHub back wiki page uh, management system so that, you know, the web app itself can very rapidly get the current content, but then all the historical versions are stored. Uh, along with some attribution so that we have a paper trail and that people can build their own front ends on top of it. In fact, that's actually the best case scenario where there's a public GitHub reveal with all the ASCII doc and somebody else who's more motivated than me can create a WYSIWYG (laughs) and because it's GitHub, there's automatic conflict resolution and everything. So um, and that way you have a wiki, which is GitHub, which I don't know if people have done that before. It seems like an obvious thing, but uh, the attempts at that have always been a little bit clunky. So that can be an interesting innovation by itself. Mm -hmm. Because uh, once you have the history in a nice machine-readable format, you can do all sorts of interesting analyses. And you can also have it, uh, you know, wanting to have it kind of like a um, um, uh, NPM module, where, you know, I like the code of contact conduct versus one version 1.4.1. 1. Uh, whereas this community over here, they go with the vers- version 2.0. And so you get have force mm-hmm. off of different versions and different namespaces, and people can you know, lock which version they want based on how much they trust the, the maintainer, uh, which gets to some really interesting design patterns for uh, organizational design and conflict and competition. Anyway, mm-hmm. all right, thank you, Ernest. Uh, best of luck with the house hunting, and I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you, Ernest. See you.
1: Okay. Bye, Ernest. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.